This is Steve Downs, the voice of Master Chief Sierra 117, with a shout out to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Keep your heads up during this time of isolation. Stay positive. Play some games. Most importantly, finish the fight. Thanks for listening to XEP. Master Chief, out. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 83 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Monday, May 24th, 2021. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we discover EA's latest studio venture. Microsoft and Bethesda have solidified their E3 plans, and we find that WB Games is yet again looking to be acquired. After that, we're joined by Giuseppe Franchi of 3-4 Big Things to discuss how his studio created Redout, the fastest anti-gravity racer available today. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I am wont to do each and every week, I like to start the show by offering words of kindness to those who have made up my gaming week better. And this week, the words of kindness go to listener Crazy Legs. Crazy Legs was kind enough to enter into the Mass Effect Legendary Edition giveaway that we did over here on my uh, socials, over at Insipid Ghost on Twitter. Uh, he was doing iTunes reviews and retweeted it, etc. He won that. But then when I reached out gave him his code, he had some very kind words for me uh, about XEP, about how he and his son both li both listened to the show. Uh, and so shout out to you, Crazy Legs and Crazy Legs Kiddo. Uh, I appreciate both of you guys listening. Um, I should let you guys know that I often don't share the giveaways that I do here on the actual podcast. I like to save that for uh, the social space, as it were. Uh, and I'm on a quest to get 70 iTunes reviews. I think we're sitting comfortably at 63 right now. Uh, so we're getting kind of close and getting up there, which is great. Uh, but moreover, thank you, Crazy Legs, for listening to the show. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Let's get to some news. It was announced this past week by AT&T that Werner Media and Discovery would be merging into one organization. And this, of course, has big implications in the gaming space, or at the very least, it could, as WB Games is looking to be shopped around in different places. Axios Gaming's Stephen Totillo picked up a few statements here and there, one of them saying, quote, some of the gaming arm will stay with AT&T and some will go with a new company, end quote. That was a spokesperson uh, with knowledge of the merger. And Stephen Totillo notes uh, in his article at Axios that there are 11 studios housed within Warner Brothers Gaming, uh, Warner Brothers Entertainment, WB Games, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and you are likely familiar with quite a bit of, of, of these studios. NetherRealm, of course, known for the Mortal Kombat and Injustice franchises and heavily rumored, I might add, to be working on a Marvel fighting game. Game. And I bring that up because even Ed Boon is in on the joke, and that seems to be very telling of sorts. Uh, of course, you might know Monolith, famous for the Middle Earth and Shadow of War games there. Rocksteady, known for the Arkham series, as well as the upcoming project Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League, uh, of which I am very nervous about. Now, WB Montreal, the one that I have all the eyes on, known uh, for Gotham Knights and Arkham Origins. WB San Francisco does their mobile stuff, and TT Games, uh, who make all the Lego 
games, and all eyes are on them for their upcoming Skywalker saga in the Star Wars pantheon. So there's a lot, a lot to be had here uh, if this this does indeed take place. If we see studios get split up, if we see IP get split up, uh, get split up, split up. I am very curious to know where some of these go, uh, and a lot of questions as to just who could afford uh, this kind of an acquisition. Now, now last year. Uh, it was in 2020, I believe July of 2020, that CNBC reported uh, a roughly $4 billion price tag on WB Games by AT&T, and they were looking to be shopped over to take to EA Activision. Of course, Microsoft was heavily rumored to be in there as well. And I'm very curious to know just uh, who's at the buying table for these different studios and where these IP go, because that is really... Uh, what is going to be most telling about the future of the gaming verse in the short term? Studios for long term, IP for short term. Uh, you have to imagine both Sony and Microsoft are in the running here, or the, the very least investigating their options. Uh, of the two, Sony and Microsoft, Microsoft certainly has the money to spend $4 billion without blinking and it not be a big deal. Sony, of course, has, has shown, proven time and again, their ability to cut deals where Microsoft has fallen short. So I have a lot of questions going forward. Now, uh, the big three in my mind are NetherRealm, Rocksteady, and WB Montreal. I think you can make a heavy case for Monolith uh, in certain statements, and I think you could also uh, understand that TT Games could be very profitable if you acquire them uh, because of their ability to work on the LEGO franchises. But for TT Games, it is the IP that tends to sell that particular studio. Uh, though, the Skywalker Saga is rumored to be a full rework on those LEGO franchises, and that might show the studio's ability to adapt and uh, create something new gameplay-wise, uh, which might be promising for a future. All of them would be good pickups, no matter who's snagging them. Uh, but my hope of all of them is that Microsoft takes the cake here. And before you think to yourself, goodness gracious, I'm listening to the Xbox expansion pass. He's defaulting to Xbox uh, just as his go-to. Uh, no, indeed not. Not that at all. When I think about third parties that would have the money to snag this, EA, Activision, Ubisoft, I don't see Ubisoft having $4 billion to, to snag something like this. Take-Two certainly could, but would they want the overhead or do they have the ability to focus on it outside of their sports titles? Uh, and Rockstar, I'm not sure. Their, their business model is not necessarily set up for that. Uh, and EA has a very schizophrenic track record over the past few years of shutting down studios just like they did to the Dead Space uh, studio, which seems to stand out in everyone's mind despite it being a good amount of time. We've also seen EA really mistreat their sports franchises uh, and sports fans with the way they treat Ultimate Team, not really producing games for the next year, the next iteration, and very much mistreating the Switch crowd as well. Uh, however, within that same EA realm, they've produced things like Titanfall, like Apex Legends, like Jedi Fallen Order, and you have to respect that. You have to respect that a lot. Uh, they've certainly treated Respawn very well. Um, and if you look at any of these studios that WB might be shopping out there, all of them command the same level of respect as Respawn does. I mean, NetherRealm, Rocksteady, WB Montreal, all of them are our top-tier AAA production studios. Uh, and so you'd have to think, well, would they be safe at a place like EA? But then you default down to, okay, we've got Sony and we've got Microsoft. Ignoring money, because the money would automatically go to Microsoft, we have seen time and again over the past few years that Microsoft has uh, studios under their acquisition umbrella that enter the playfold 
and report good things. They are acquired and they seemingly continuously report that they're being well treated. Even outspoken uh, developers like Tim Schafer are, are saying good things uh, about being under the Microsoft umbrella. We've also seen a healthy amount of production uh, coming out of those studios when a lot of teams working within each studio and, and saying that there are smaller projects, things like Grounded are going very well, things like Outer Worlds are going well, to the bigger stuff that's going to be years away uh, being very well respected. I take that as a sign of encouragement, uh, at least from the outside looking in. To, to the counterpoint, we don't actually know just how well Sony treats its developers. We've seen studios shutter, we've seen studios being opened, and it's really a lack of reporting that casts a doubt in my mind. I don't hear anything about Sony being a bad place to work, that those articles, those Schreier-esque articles, don't seem to come out. There was a crunch conversation that seemed to surround uh, a bit of Last of Us 2, and then you look at the quality of it, and you have to wonder uh, who's speaking, how they're speaking, what's going on there. Uh, But I don't ever consistently hear that Sony is actually the problem in those cases. Uh, Moreover, you have the idea that Microsoft is willing to delay games in order to let them be developed versus rushing them out the door. Halo Infinite, the most recent example, uh, and then reports of late that Starfield's not going to be rushed this year as well. So I really wonder just what's getting shopped and what IP are getting shopped. The, The biggest aspect of this that makes me worry is the idea that the Batman franchise could potentially go to Sony as an exclusive. And I don't like when major IP that are well-known and respected that tend to Uh, I don't know if it's the right term, but belong to everybody. I don't like when they go to exclusive developers. For exclusive consoles, I should say. Um, It bothered me in the developer side when when Star Wars went to EA only. That really, I don't think, helped that franchise. Despite the recovery of Battlefront 2, I don't think it helped Star Wars fans get Star Wars experiences. Uh, moreover, when you look in the the superhero genre, the idea that Batman belongs to WB Games right now, WB Montreal specifically working on Gotham Knights, if Sony were to gobble up Batman, they would own the two most profitable superheroes under their console space, which is great if you're a PlayStation user. But if you are not a PlayStation user, uh, I really worry about the idea that of your ability to have access to those characters. Uh, in fact, Spider-Man, I really feel, belongs on every console. I really liked that we saw Spider-Man existing in Ultimate Alliance 3 over on the Switch. I don't like the idea that he can't exist on Xbox. When it comes to things like Infamous and God of War and Ghost of Tsushima, Halo, Gears of War, I understand why those particular characters and games and franchises would be specific. But I don't like the idea that a Star Wars, a Batman, a Spider-Man could be sectioned and cordoned off to only belong to certain console spaces. So my hope is that if any of the console makers is to gobble up WB games or the Batman IP rights. It would be Xbox so that there is a bit of competitive uh, diversity in where you find these games. I worry sometimes that the conglomeratization, that's a big way to put it, the idea that, that one company might have everything, that does worry me a bit. Even in this delivery space of subscription services, I think there's an inherent difference between having lots of studios making lots of games and occupying and holding uh, all the the notable IP of a certain genre. Now, the caveat being, 
do I think Sony would, would treat the Batman license well? Absolutely. Would I buy Batman if it's on a Sony product? Absolutely. My PlayStation 5 sits over there. It is my exclusive machine. I am so looking forward to many, many different IP, including the next Spider-Man experience. Uh, and if I had to be, the next Batman experience for sure. But I don't want the all the superhero stuff to end up on just one place. Netherrealm, Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat belongs everywhere. I would hate to see hate to see a Street Fighter V situation where you could not access your favorite fighting game unless you had a certain console. Certain things I don't think should be exclusive. That's my dog over there. She's equally excited by that as well. Um, I do want to note real quick, Suicide Squad killed the Justice League. We talked about that a bit on Cast Co-op 5 as well, and this a lot of this was covered in Cast Co-op 5. If you haven't checked that out, please do so. Um, I really, really worry about that game. I am currently re-diving into uh, Marvel's Avengers with the next-gen upgrade and some of the newer expansions they put in there that I had not touched for a while. And while I'm enjoying elements of it, really surprisingly so, I might add, um, I just don't want a games of service to happen with the superhero genre. I just don't think it works very well, at least not in the versions we've had so far. So here's hoping Rocksteady uh, changes course, as it were. Uh, Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Let's pause there. Next up on the docket, of course, this week, we have Microsoft and Bethesda announcing that they are going to have a joint showcase this year uh, for E3 and the various summer events. There was a lot of speculation as to whether or not Bethesda would have their own show which they've done in years past, uh, or they would be combining with Microsoft, and it looks like we're going to be having a joint uh, a joint showcase uh, overall. This news was revealed in an interview with uh, Leigh Figaro, where Xbox Game Studio head Matt Booty said that the two companies would be sharing the spotlight at E3 in 2021, uh, which is a big deal, a very big deal, particularly when you recognize that this will be the first time a major event will be taking place since Microsoft's $7.5 billion acquisition of ZeniMax, uh, and that brings in a lot of studios there. Uh, it also kind of brings and retreads the idea of, okay, that's a lot of money, but is it a lot of money? Uh, and I'm just not sure. Uh, nonetheless, it was noted that uh, Microsoft's strategy is going to be to leave studios to their creative freedom, and that's something that Matt Booty consistently talks about. However, I'm very curious to see uh, if that creative freedom plays into the showcase at E3. Will we see them get to do their own thing, or are they going to be trying to uh, split up part and parcel with how they show off different games? A lot of eyes are on Starfield and what's going to happen there. I have seen the most... This is a tangent, sorry. Uh, I have seen the most ridiculous YouTubers and content creators putting out videos like everything we know about Starfield, the definitive compilation, this, that, and the other, and no one knows anything. No one knows everything. Er, anything rather. None of these content creators seem to have inside sources or anything other than vagaries. It's being made by Bethesda. Uh, e- even the idea that it's exclusive is still technically a rumor. Uh, e- there's even clips of Todd Howard saying, I don't know why people are excited. You know, we, we haven't shown anything. And it's true. We really don't know what this game is. I'm thrilled to know what it will be when we find out. But I'm not holding my breath. And I'm certainly not going to pretend that uh, we should all be just ludicrously in love with it because it's Bethesda. These are the same people that made Doom Eternal and whatnot. Well, not not technically, but, you know, like the same umbrella. But they also made Fallout 4 and Fallout 76, and those games were riddled with launch issues. 
my hope is that by being under the Xbox Game Studio umbrella, they're getting funding and time to make it the game they want to make it. Uh, again, I alluded to, to Avengers earlier. I'm starting to see now where that game was trying to go. And had COVID not been a thing and they've been able to get content out faster with it without interruption, maybe we would have had a better product there. Microsoft's really good at supporting studios to get games where they uh, need to be uh, after they launch. I mean, and, and we've had a lot of examples of this. Uh, not just Xbox Game Studios, but there are games that launch and recover well. Uh, Rainbow Six Siege, Sea of Thieves, uh, No Man's Sky. There's a, there's a lot of them. But I don't want Starfield to be in that thread there. So uh, here's hoping that this joint conference shows off good things, shows off, uh, shows off enough content where you have proper expectations and people aren't left wanting and wondering what's going to go on there. Uh, I am going to use this moment to bring in a few listener questions that have to do with E3. Mav, Mr. Fun Speculation uh, from Xbox Ultimate, I believe, uh, he writes in and says, what kind of a showing will Halo Infinite have E3? And then Amon from... (laughs) From X Talk, he writes in and says, "Do you think Xbox should end the show with Halo or Starfield?" So, great questions, gents. Let me address a few of them first. What kind of showing will E3, uh, will Halo have at E3? Halo Infinite needs to have uh, two different showcases at E3, and you can split them actually up between E3 and Summer Game Fest if you want to. But you need to have some single player love where you show off a good amount of the single player. You detail why. Uh, The Pelican pilot is going to be so important as the player's voice in the game. Historically, Chief is a very quiet character, and it was through Cortana that the player's voice was really heard. You know, like, what's that? What's this? That kind of thing. Uh, The Pelican pilot seems to be playing that role of sorts because Chief will still be uh, likely fairly quiet by comparison, at least to his Halo 1 through uh, 3 campaigns. But you need to show off that Pelican Pilot's voice through the eyes of Master Chief as you, you see gameplay uh, experiences in single player. You also need to detail why Atriox is such a good big bad. The villain makes everything when it comes to games like this. The villain is just a key element. You don't get a good Batman game without a good villain, without a good Joker or what have you. Uh, so my expectation is that you get a good single player showcase, a trailer as well as gameplay showing off... Uh, the idea that there's no pop-in on glitches, the stuff they've fixed, and really showcase the character building that you have. Um, I also really want to see Craig uh, Craig the Brute in the trailer somehow, and I want Atriox to kill him, to, to just kind of create a new meme of Atriox just wrecking uh, the expectations of the player. That would be awesome. Uh, and then quite separately, Mav, you need to have a multiplayer showcase where you're showcasing what is so special about Halo Infinite's multiplayer, what you're doing with things like big team battle, what you're doing with things that uh, maybe the Halo fans that are enjoying the game in Halo 5's Warzone, which you can't now call Warzone uh, thanks to Call of Duty's massive success, 120 million players in, in Call of Duty Warzone. What are you going to do there for those players? What are you going to do for the players that are enjoying the suite of options in Master Chief Collection. How does Halo Infinite work with the Master Chief Collection, if at all? You need to showcase those things, perhaps throw a date out there for a a sign-up beta, what have you. Uh, If Battlefield 6 is going to be getting a release date in Summer Game Fest or EA Play, which is in, I believe, July, maybe you need to tease a Halo Infinite uh, release date and recognize that you don't want to put Battlefield 6 right next to Halo. Uh, my expectation that that right now in my mind I'm taking is fact, which I have no information on, uh, is that Halo 
Infinite and Battlefield 6 are, are going to be sharing some information with each other as far as release dates because of the marketing deal uh, that is likely in place there. I do genuinely think that we'll see Battlefield 6 on Game Pass, at least in some capacity. Maybe the multiplayer is in Game Pass, what have you. So there needs to be a spacing issue. Perhaps you get a release date there. I'm not, I'm not too sure on that one. Amon's question about whether or not you end the show with Halo or Starfield, I think you end the show with a new game, a game that you haven't necessarily seen before. Starfield is fine if Bethesda's ready to show it. I don't necessarily know that you end the show with it because it's so far out uh, and people are already have expectations for it. I'm thinking it's a 2022 game. I think Schreier and a few others are, are spitting out that idea. I think you have Halo in, in the beginning of your showcase and then you got Starfield in the middle. And then towards the end, you've got an unknown IP there. Uh, Starfield's just this big, weird question mark. So I just don't know how to take it for that one. Uh, but anywho, bottom line, Bethesda and Xbox are going to be joint showcases. And I think that's a good thing as we move towards this world where we're really just going to have uh, the two things be one and the same. And I'm stoked for it. And guys, think about it. It's like three weeks away. That's awesome. This next story is one that I just kind of came across as I was perusing the old Twitterverse earlier this past week. Uh, and it's that EA, again, that schizophrenic EA, is building a new team around Kevin Stevens, who was Monolith Productions' studio head during the development of the Shadow of Mordor franchise. This is very exciting to me. Uh, there's no real information beyond that other than that then Stevens is now going to have his own studio and EA is going to be funding it. Uh, and, and it'll bring a few key players back into the fold to work with, with each other. Uh, but I'm stoked to see just what talent like Stevens can do. Of course, the Shadow of War and Shadow of Mordor games are just fantastic in their own right to see him existing in an engine that is not the same as what they were doing at monolith will be very cool to see uh and just to track overall but i like the idea of seeing you know developers of that pedigree get a bigger check uh, available to them moreover i think ea has a problem right now with open world games as they really let down with amy hennig's game uh we saw a few other canceled projects in the open world series we've also seen them um how do i put this fall short in a couple different categories and i've really talked about that schizophrenic idea they've shuttered a lot of studios over the past few years and defaulted them into mediocrity so my hope is that with talent like this coming in uh we see uh, something new a new direction for ea whether or not they they monetize in certain ways all remains to be seen i know a lot of people are worried about loot boxes and surprise mechanics uh and i think it's a tale of two eas and i'm not sure which one we'll get with this one but um in the short term glad to see a new studio being created glad to see people finding jobs glad to see talent of that level working on new ip that'll be dope <laughs> Alrighty, guys, let's get to a review of sorts. Resident Evil 8 Village. Goodness gracious, guys. I know I teased it last week when I was talking with Asa Green River. I said that I wasn't overly thrilled or scared uh, on the game at first. It was certainly of high quality. I stand by that. The game is absolutely fantastic. After having finished the game, I can tell you that it is among my favorite Resident Evil games of all time. It might even be the best Resident Evil game of all time. It's beautiful. It plays well. I experienced no glitches in my entire time playing it. It is fantastic. It is not scary. 
So take that how you will right there. I made the analogy in, in a couple different places, and perhaps you've seen it on socials, but uh, very much Resident Evil 7 Biohazard is the alien of the, of the games, whereas uh, Resident Evil 8 Village is the aliens of the franchise. Aliens, of course, is the, the action-driven ver- sequel to Alien, which was more uh, horror-driven and quiet, and that's really the case here. Resident Evil 7 is a fantastic horror game in which you are consistently underpowered and on the run and making your way around an area that is super dark. Village is far better lit. You are far more powerful and capable uh, in in battling different enemies, and ammo is more plentiful. There's a lot to discover in this huge world. Uh, I spent about 12 hours in it, and they both have the same ridiculous uh, nonsense puzzles that, that any Resident Evil game would have, but Village really went through some good editing and that the pacing is just wonderful. There is a, a bit of a change of pace towards the latter portion of the game. Uh, the, the game becomes a bit more arcadey, but I still loved my time with it. Um, I will say, it started off a little slow. I found myself a bit bored in that first castle, which unfortunately, uh, Castle Demetresk is where you see Big Vampire Lady and her three daughters, and that seems to get memed to death. And the best parts of the game are actually after that. Uh, At least in my experience, I wasn't overly thrilled with Vampire Lady, but I really had an absolute blast with this one. Uh, I gotta tell you, both Resident Evil 7 and 8 are 100% games that you should be buying and playing. Uh, back off seven if you can't handle scary games. Uh, that said, I still think it's worth it to power through to just play just an incredibly high quality game. Incredibly high quality. I don't know if that's good verbiage there, but uh, I, I absolutely loved it. If you enjoyed seven, you may love eight. If you loved seven, you may just enjoy eight. But both are just 100% well worth your time. Buy them at full price, $60, $70, whatever your platform of choice is. I was playing this on Series X, and goodness gracious, that RE engine shined. It shined on an OLED TV. It was just nuts. Absolutely nuts. Um, But yeah, I'm thrilled to death with this one. Uh, I will say, once again, I received a code from Capcom for this one. So take that into consideration as you hear my words. Uh, But I think if you examine the reviews that are out there in the interwebs as well as this here, uh, you'll be quite pleased with your purchase. Definitely check out Resident Evil 8. This is Paul Bettner, creator of New Super Lucky's Tale, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Listener mail time before we get to the interview with Giuseppe Franchi, uh, who, by the way, that's a great interview. I really enjoyed hearing him talk. Some interviews uh, are about games that you may never have played. Of course, Red Out is an anti-gravity racer. You may have never played Red Out before, uh, and you might have just been like, oh, cool, it's another Wipeout-like game. Uh, Just hearing him talk about design and kinetic lines and how you give the players certain experiences is really neat and uh, a special treat for me, I guess, because I like the game. So take that how you will. Let's get to some questions here. Uh, This first one comes from Mr. Dano, and Dan says, Remember when Netflix had that feature on Xbox 360 where you could watch movies in a little theater with your friends and their avatars? Yeah, I still think about that. Oh, man, I do remember that, Dano, and I never used that feature. I never really wanted that feature. I think it would have been cool to have during the pandemic. Uh, if I'm being honest, but I never really sit still long enough uh, in that kind of a setting for sure. But I think it'd be great to see a use of the avatars in some way, shape, or form now because they're largely useless and hidden behind just menu after menu. Uh, It would be kind of cool to see that come back in some way, shape, or form, viewing parties in one way or another, be it from Netflix or another app. Uh, They seem to be 
kind of a thing at the beginning of the pandemic as people tried to reach out. Uh, I don't know that that would still be the case, but hey, I mean, why not? If the feature is uh, available and easy to do, it'd be cool to see if it was rolled out there and checked out. Good question, or rather, good comment, Dan. This next question comes from Eric Jackson, and he says, What, in your estimation, does Halo in its post-delay reintroduction need to show to put concerns fans or yourself may still have, if any, to bed? What would give reassurances that it's on the right path? Great questions, Eric. I think I might have accidentally answered a few of these earlier in the episode, but as I said earlier, uh, two different two different showcases for Halo Infinite. One dedicated to single player, one dedicated to multiplayer. Uh, the multiplayer is is the one that you need to roll out dates for insider betas and, and uh, open betas. You need to really do some flight testing on that and make sure that when you launch Halo Infinite's multiplayer, free to play for everybody in the world to check out. It is ready to go. No Master Chief Collection mess. No no looking for lobby, crashing, that kind of thing. Really check this thing out and make sure it has the smoothest launch possible. You're showing off a game that you've had in development for a long time. You're showing off a game that you were willing to delay a year for. You want to make sure that every single one of those betas stress tests the hell out of those servers and gets them ready to roll in the best ways possible. Uh, you also need to make sure that you're showing off what's special about Halo Infinite's multiplayer that might bring a player over from Fortnite, from Call of Duty Warzone, from Apex Legends, or from any other competitive shooter out there. You got Battlefield 6 launching in the same window, likely a new Call of Duty as well. You really need to make sure that you are giving people a reason to check out Halo because them use them young people, they don't care about Halo. People like me, I mean, I got the freaking Mega Bloks Pelican over there. I'm, I love Halo. But uh, we got to find a way to sell it to the U's in the right way. Uh, and then, of course, the single-player stuff. Sell the villain. Sell the villain. You're already playing as Chief. That's going to bring a lot of people anyway. But sell the villain. we got to figure out why Atriox is such a great big bad. This last question comes from Eaton Ruby. He says, Considering the murky future of WB Games, could NetherRealm Studios end up a Microsoft first-party studio? Mortal Kombat and Justice-based games on Game Pass Day 1, but also huge member discounts for character DLC. Their money and engagement rates make it a perfect uh, for hitting Game Pass's KPIs. Oh, man. You, you're making good points, and I hear you, and I am sure, sure, that that is being looked at. There are certain acquisitions that I could see Microsoft making and not putting things exclusive out the gate. Uh, fighting games would be one of them. Fighting games live and die by their community. Uh, see Street Fighter V. That, that has a great healthy community that nobody knows about or cares about and it doesn't. Street Fighter is not a known property anymore. Injustice and Mortal Kombat took the cake on that because it was available in so many other places. So... Yeah, I can see a scenario where Microsoft buys all of WB Game Studios. Uh, I can see a scenario where they buy just some of them, where they grab what they can. Uh, I can see a scenario where they buy up WB Montreal and Gotham Knights and give it to everybody, PlayStation, Xbox, whatever. Uh, there's a lot of ways to inter interact with that one, but the, they absolutely, in a fighting game, would love to have the Game Pass audience have that available to them, uh, and discounts on character DLC would certainly sell a lot more. We've seen that proven time and again. So uh, here's hoping we, we see some progress on that front. But it's a good question, Eaton. I just don't know that I have the right answers for you. All right, guys. That's going to do it for this portion of the show. Before I kick you over to... 
the next interview. I would love it, love it, love it. If you guys wouldn't mind taking the time to share this out on socials, you can find me on on Twitter at Insipid Ghost, and those retweets really do go a long way. You can follow me on YouTube, YouTube.com/slash Xbox Expansion Pass. That means the world when people check that out on that platform as well. But most importantly, I hope you enjoy listening to the show and are able to write a review for it on the old iTunes. Have a great time. Enjoy the interview. Take care, everybody. Well, I'd like to welcome now to the show, all the way from Italy, lead game designer and co-founder of 3-4 Big Things, Giuseppe Franchi. Giuseppe, thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting us, me. Us, three, four. <laughs> I speak for the I'm group. I'm ecstatic to have you. There you go. Hey, that's what we want. That's what we want. <laughs> I, uh, You should know that I have spent uh, this entire morning and many mornings before work uh, playing Red Out, uh, going through hairpin turns, listening to incredible music, and cussing a lot as I run <laughs> into the sides. Uh, I cannot wait to talk about the Red Out franchise with you. But first, I thought it would be appropriate to... Uh, get into your roles. You have the title of lead game designer and co-founder of Three Four Big Things. Uh, that is is quite quite the the resume right there. Uh, you helped found the studio in 2013. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, Three uh, Four Big Things was originally founded by uh, me, Valerio Di Donato, and Giacomo Ferronato. There are other two Italian guys that I met. Uh, we met actually studying uh, abroad. We took a master's degree in games uh, in Copenhagen, so we're actually expats. And then there we basically met, we tried to avoid each other for as much as possible because we didn't go all the way to Denmark to actually talk to other Italian people. And then mm-hmm. at the end of the at the end of the master, we actually got together for a little gig, something that would like, you know, pay rent while writing the thesis. And um mm-hmm. That went really well, and then we decided to keep working together. And uh, I'll, cut, I'll cut it short. We, we went back to Italy, basically rented uh, a home together with a, with a shared living room, and we worked in the living room for a few months. And that's how Three Four Big Things originally, originally started. And uh, I was like, uh, let's say, uh, I kind of took the title of game designer because I, I was studying uh, games uh, in the branch of game design while mm-hmm. Valerio and Giacomo were studying technology, so they were actually coders uh, full-time. I have uh, uh, you know, background in coding as well, because mm-hmm. you know, when, you know, you know, when we are three people, uh, you can't really afford... <laughs> everybody has to be working in the engine on, on the code at some point. But I was just like, let's say... Uh, I was the game designer because I was the worst at coding. <laughs> let's, say, let's put it like that. <laughs> oh, well, uh, if, if the founding of the studio was in 2013, and we're looking at 2021 at the time of this recording, uh, that's, you know, uh, almost 10 years in the industry. Uh, has your coding gotten any better? It got really worse, actually. Uh, <laughs> it, it got really better at the beginning when I was actually forced to do stuff. But then uh, S3 for Big Things expanded. Like, we took in more people to actually do some extra gigs and actually focus working on our games, uh, mm-hmm. the first of which was actually Red Out. 
um, they were so much better than me, so why bother? I actually decided to focus on something else, something I was better at. So I basically, uh, you mentioned earlier, like cussing at uh, slamming into walls you know, on mm-hmm. Red Out. I was mainly responsible for that because I was the one who designed all the tracks and basically tweaked the driving model. So that's entirely on me. Well, I'm very angry with you for a couple of those tracks, but I will tell you what, Cairo is my favorite, and I absolutely adore that track. So thank you for that one in particular, I'll say. (laughs) You're welcome. I'm overjoyed to hear that. Yeah. So you guys started off as a fairly small studio, uh, an independent studio at that. Uh, Where are you guys at a size now? Uh, We are actually growing. We are about 36 people. 36 people and that's a big big difference i suppose than being uh getting an apartment together straight out of university uh yeah very much so actually it was it always felt big like working in three four big things for some reason because like the three of us lasted for just a few months then we took another another guy in that is marco tansini uh, mm-hmm. which became uh, one of the co-founders as well, because basically we, c- we couldn't afford it to, to, to pay him the, the, the wage he was actually worth. So we, we just offered him to uh, jump, jump on board. And um, fairly shortly after that, we hired two people um, mm-hmm. that could actually help us in you know making games because we were focused pretty much all the time on you know paying rent. So actually... Mm-hmm you know decided to work some extra hours taking a little extra two extra contracts and then hire these two people so we could actually start working on our own games so in in a relatively short time we were up to six people and that already felt like big to me mm-hmm. um it was really a matter of time and i didn't really know how it happened how it happened but like we just acted as a catalyst for so many talented people that were around here in the area we were extremely lucky um, and then during, I would say, the first uh, 18 months, we were up to 12 people, all in the living room, by the way. Wow. We were just setting up uh, desks or after desks after desks. And uh, like, uh, how can we squeeze another desk in here? And it became really crazy. It was like, uh, <laughs> it was not a home anymore. It was, it was really weird. At some point, we decided we needed a real office when... Like Valerios decided to move the desk on the on the balcony because it was hot. It was too hot to work in there. with <laughs> July, and he said, "You know what? Uh, I have to like, I, I I'll work from outside." <laughs> no, okay, guys, we need an office now. So I would imagine uh, being so different from from where it is now, and the team being so big, having an office. Do you kind of look at that as, as a surreal thing? Like, is it is it odd for you to realize? I mean, it's still odd for me to realize that I'm here talking to you and that there might be people out there willing to actually know where we, where we come from. So everything feels extremely weird. It, it never, it never ceased to be. <laughs> Interesting. Oh man, I can, I can just imagine. Uh, how about pressure? I mean, being a co-founder of a company that's been around for so long, you guys have won a ton of awards for the Red Out series. Uh, one of the biggest Italian independent developers as well. Uh, any pressure? Do you do you feel burdened by any of that, or is it something that you can hang your hat on? Um, <laughs> not really sure how to answer. I mean, the imposter syndrome is always there. Like mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, it, it gets really hard also in our history, also because after Red Out, which was extremely successful by our standards, like we were really blown away by, by the support we got from the players and like how well received the generically it was, like how fun it was and the, the reaction from the people playing it. Not, I'm not just talking about commercial success, just like um, people comparing it to F-Zero saying, oh, this is exactly like the old classics that, that's what really made us, you know, feel like that we were achieving something. Like, you know, there is still space in the game industry to do something. Like, mm-hmm. you, you have a voice, you can say something meaningful. That was an incredible realization to make. And, of course, after that, uh, we were really, like, keen on, you know, surpassing ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, making the, the next big thing, making something that was even even bigger, even better. Um, we haven't managed to do that yet. Like all the games that came out, uh, fell. I mean, I don't want to say that fell short of expectations, but like had a, a weird development uh, roadmap. All of them, for one reason or another, uh, it was really it was a really strange time. But like as a result, uh, no other game has stopped the success of Redout. So after a while, it kind of grows on you. Uh, you know, I want to be back there. I want to be acclaimed like I used to be when Red Out came <laughs> out. It's mm-hmm. it's addicting. It's really an extremely, it's an extremely addictive feeling. And no matter how they how much they praise uh, the other games we made, um, that feeling is is just like it never happened again. So we're really looking forward to repeat that experience. Um, so we're not done yet. I would say. But yeah, sometimes you do feel like a cheat in, in a way, like, oh, that was just a like, stroke of luck. But again, uh, we are growing. We are almost 40 people now. So uh, every day I keep reminding myself that it wasn't. Like, we are, uh, the studio is so much better than it's ever been. Like, we have some extraordinary people on board now. We have a production pipeline that is extremely solid. And I'm really, really proud of where we stand as a team right now. And I can't wait for our new game to come out and actually prove it. We are going to get to that in just a minute. But I want to give context for listeners because you're talking about this, you know, it feels like a stroke of luck. And I want to assure listeners, it's not. Red Out came out in 2016 on Windows and then in 2017 for consoles, uh, Xbox One, PS4. And it's a racing anti-gravity racer in the vein of Wipeout, F-Zero, Extreme G. Uh, and that's what drew me to the game as well. There's also a Switch port uh, that came out fairly recently. That game is by no means a stroke of luck. And you guys talked about, or rather you said that that in the beginning you were taking things to pay bills. Uh, that's a, by my count, three-year development cycle from the founding of the studio to the release uh, in 2016. Is that accurate or is my math wrong or, or where am I missing? Fill in the blanks for me. Uh, I'm really bad at keeping tabs on, uh, you know, dates and stuff. But uh, you can say that, yeah, Redout was basically a three years development project. Because mm-hmm. I remember distinctly, like, Three Four Big Things was founded January 15, 2013. And Redout mm-hmm. came out by the end of 2016, about September, if I'm not mistaken. So it was originally mm-hmm. scheduled to be a one-year project. But then it grows so much, like, it grows so big that we actually... Uh, decided to launch another game before that to actually test our go-to-market strategy, you know, learn how to go on Steam, learn how to sell your game digitally because that's an area that we were not experts in and Mm -hmm. we didn't want to squander the potential of the game with a botched launch. 
Mm-hmm. And so we made another smaller project that is Hyperdrive Massacre. That is actually our first released game. Really? Yeah. And okay. uh, so we developed that in about a year, I would say, across 2015. And then after mm-hmm. that was launched, we decided to, you know, complete, wrap, read out completely, like wrap it up and, and launch it. Interesting. What lessons from Hyperdrive Massacre did you learn that helped you with Red Out? Uh, going to market is a full-time job, like uh, is a profession. Uh, getting to know um, how to establish relationship with the platform holders, uh, how to navigate SDKs, uh, integrate uh, whatever support is needed to for consoles, for example, uh, controls, uh, rebinding, uh, leaderboards, uh, APIs, um, there is there is a lot of work uh, behind the scenes to actually get to different platforms, and uh, the, I think that the switch port kind of proves it, given that it took a while. Mm-hmm. And um, well, that was the I'm first thing, and the second thing, sorry, it's uh, you gotta actually, uh, you know, uh, hit a, a good time for actually go to market, especially in a crowded market like PC gaming, and. Um, Whenever you have a chance on a lesser crowded platform, for example, like <laughs> the Switch, if we were a little bit more timely, it would have been great. Uh, by the time we got there, it was already like a little full of, of games, but it's really, it's really cool for a developer to actually go, get to a new console when, uh, when the catalog is not that crammed with titles. Exposure is almost everything. Mm-hmm. Like being on the storefront is almost everything. We often get listeners writing questions to developers about being on those storefronts for different platforms, Xbox, Steam, Switch, what have you. Is that a, a special thing that you have to negotiate when you're, when you're trying to bring something to market? Or is it, is it luck? Uh, how is it that you go about getting your game in front of, of people on a storefront versus, say, social media campaigns or, or having influencers or other things like that? Well, the storefront is owned by somebody so they basically can do whatever they want it's like having a shelf like which products i put on my shelf it's just like uh, my decision and i'm gonna put mm-hmm. those products that like are supposedly going to sell more mm-hmm. so that helps like if you have a track record that helps uh so in this case having launched another game uh, no matter how small it was it really helped us in uh, negotiating for red out and being at all at every possible convention also helped us in establishing, you know, relationships with actual people. Mm-hmm. So when Red Out launched, we were like, we spent two years going to each and every possible game event in the world. Like, we went from Las Vegas to San Francisco to Chicago to Europe, Berlin, uh, Milan, um, Asia, um, whatever you ma- you mentioned it, we've been there, uh, and it was really important to actually. So when when you write a mail and Right, three, four big things. Uh, we're launching Red Out soon. They actually remember you. Mm. They saw your game. They might have liked it, so they so you have a chance. Does I, that I, d- does that be not being able to go to conventions in pandemic times? Does that change your approach to launching new games? Um, not for us that much because we already done that <laughs> that part of the heavy lifting. Uh, so in a way, um, people already know us. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it's a huge burden for uh, independent developers that are actually emerging now. I mm-hmm. wouldn't know how to tackle this issue if I were in their shoes. So it's uh, be nice to indies in this uh, in this period, like because as a consequence of what I just said, 
uh, you might have to dig a little deeper in the catalogs <laughs> in the in the next month but or right now so go buy indies and support them because uh, that's like uh, that's a whole channel of self promotion that just went away and wasn't mm-hmm. wasn't accessible for the entirety of last year so i yeah. i'm imagining that like emerging studios are having a hard time on on, on that front i can imagine so as well well, let's go back to Red Out now because this is a franchise that you guys have branched into rail shooters with with Space Assault, and we'll get to that. But I want to talk specifically about uh, Red Out as as this game that now spans multiple consoles. It has DLC. The music is just wildly cool. Uh, there's VR support. So many things we can talk about on this front. When you launched the game, what were you most proud of? Um. In terms of reception, I was really, really proud of the first reaction videos that came out, like video reviews from mm-hmm. also from very famous streamers. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I remember we we were at the office, just like all around the single desk, and watching the reviews as they as they came live. Just one guy would shout, "Hey!" Uh, Total Biscuits review of Redout is online, and we just got all gathered there and listened to what they had to say. And like it was really, really, uh, I, I, I'm a loss. I'm a little bit of a loss for of words here, also because you know I'm not a native speaker. But um, mm-hmm. it was really, uh, <laughs> I can't really describe how it felt like when these famous personalities like described your game as being absolutely amazing, and how this reminded them of uh, Wipeout and that that feeling of uh, excitement they felt back in the days. That was really wild. And it really left you like wanting for more. Then you you would find yourself like unable to work and go scout websites for reviews and go on Metacritic and scout YouTube and look for other commentaries, look for players like playthroughs, commented playthroughs. Mm-hmm. That was really addicting in a way. So I was really I was really proud of the reception that the game had. Uh, sure, it, the game had shortcomings, and uh, also the videos mentioned them. Uh, they were. They were quite apparent, and uh, we were at work like fixing them from day zero, basically. But um, for some reason, for that game, we were able to overlook these <laughs> shortcomings and actually focus on the positive aspects, which was really, really cool. When, what comes first when designing a, an anti-gravity racer? Is it, is it? I mean, I'm sure concept per se, but as you're building the game, is it tracks? Is it ship design, augments? Like what go, what's the process for building an anti-gravity racer game? Uh, in our case, it was the driving model, I would say, because uh, we decided that Redout should have been the game that you remember for being absurdly fast. Uh, at the time when we started, uh, we had a one-year production schedule and we were a small team. So we, we said, basically, nobody's going to care about our game if we don't really excel in at least one aspect. And that aspect for us had to be speed, like feeling of speed and the actual speed. Uh, so much that we had trouble in um, with the Unreal physics engine because like the ship would... Uh, traverse uh, wide objects in just the space of one single frame because it was going just so fast that the one frame the ship is here and the other frame the ship is there so basically the, the physics engine couldn't keep up and you would just like zip through a solid object because it wouldn't uh, pick up the collision so we had to do some work around that so the ships actually go real fast in the engine and we worked a lot in having you perceive this sense of speed as well with 
we use all the tricks in the book, really, field of view, kinetic lines, uh, camera angles, blur, vignetting, uh, chromatic aberration, whatever could come to our mind, we tested it, and uh, that was really paramount. Um, I would say I would say that's the first aspect. So actually, how the ship behaves and how you feel mm-hmm. about uh, how the ship behaves. And how do you go about refining that? I mean, are you play testing? Do you have? I mean, I'm sure you guys are play testing here and there. But are you bringing in people that are familiar with anti gravity racers? Are you bringing in people that are are it's very alien to them? How are you gathering feedback on that? Uh, we tried a little bit of both, actually. Uh, on paper, we knew how it's supposed to work. Uh, in practice, we did not. So basically, we had a bunch of people come into the studio and play our game. Uh, and in hindsight, we were completely unable to actually grasp <laughs> the message that they were trying to convey us. And um, But as a, you know, as a mitigation strategy, as I said, we went to all and every possible event uh, mm-hmm. gaming event in those years and we always had i always had that laptop if not me just the other guys that one laptop with the latest build of red out on it and we would just like set up on a table and have people play it and i distinctly remember i was in las vegas for uh, for the evo mm-hmm. um and we had these awesome hardcore players like fighting game players with their own custom controllers uh, there for the tournament that would come in and stop and play Red Out. Like, watching them struggle with the driving model made uh, made me realize that, okay, we, we are too close to launch. This is still not accessible enough. We've done mm-hmm. a ton of playtesting already, and we didn't catch that. So we basically couldn't wait to go back home and uh, actually fix it because it kind of clicked uh, there was really a sudden moment of, uh, there was an epiphany there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we went back home, uh, I talked to the others, we worked on the driving model a little bit, and uh, out came Red Out as you know it. Uh, it used to be much more you know, heavy, much more sluggish, it was like harder to make turns. And we, wanted mm-hmm. to, we wanted people to actually drive, so if you see a sharp turn, you're supposed to actually, you know, think about a way to go around that corner so actually break a little bit if needed and then jump in the corner use the, the strafing as well and uh, think about the racing line and whatnot but uh, Redout is not that Redout is just like speed adrenaline and accessible immediate control so it basically took the entirety of the driving model and we basically doubled or tripled the power of the steering speed and the strafing speed so that mm-hmm. she would be like extremely responsive and that was basically the major change that playtesting led us through. But yeah, in theory, you should be able to anticipate this by having people like come in the studio, play your game as much as possible, and you know have uh, a focused focused feedback, like ask the right questions, and you get the answer, and then you can understand where your game is going, if it's going where you want or not. It's so funny you say that because it was the strafing that I was ignoring when I was having the most problems with it. And once I figured that out and it clicked for me, my entire approach to maneuvering around the tracks changed. And I was far more successful, I might add. But uh, it, it clicked over for me in that moment. And that seemed to set the game apart from other anti-grab racers in, in certain respects. Uh, and that's just, I think the coolest feeling is when a game like that does click for you uh, I, so i thank you for, uh, i suppose for that effort and i and i 
I'm very happy I, to hear that. <laughs> I might be, yeah. I mean, I'm, I might be biased, but like whenever I, re- I play another racing game, I instinctively like, look for the strafing option as well, even though mm-hmm. I perfectly know that like very few games have that. Now it feels so natural to me. It's it's weirder to like driving racing game without having a strafe button. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's an interesting concept too, and I and I. Uh... I find that little tweaks, very small tweaks to my approach in in many racing games, not just Red Out, uh, will make the biggest difference between first and and last place. Uh, Red Out in particular, because there is that sense of speed. Now, you mentioned some of those tricks and buzzwords, field of view, chromatic aberration, and and a few others. Um, Can you kind of pick one or two and just elaborate to listeners on, on what some of those tricks are to make you feel like you're going fast? Oh, th- 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 let me think a little bit. Well, one pretty obvious, I would say, is uh, kinetic lines. Mm-hmm. Like in comic books, um, whenever something is moving fast, then uh, you have this thing in the eye that's like, you feel like you see something moving at the edge of your field of view. Mm-hmm. And um, that is kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to represent um, in uh, in a two D space, so mm-hmm. uh, you basically fake it. You place these uh, objects, um, like these lines, moving at the edge of your uh, of your eye screen of your of the screen. So at the edge of your eye of the, of your field of view, and that simulates some things coming at you very fast. That is uh, like trick number zero, and the trick number one, I would say, is field of view as well. Uh, by mm-hmm. changing that on the camera. Uh, there is a neat video um, that you can find uh, of a camera on a train with different uh, fields of view. The train is moving at the same speed, but uh, by changing the, the field of view of the camera, it really feels like you're going extremely slow or extremely fast. I know that video. It's where, it, like, it to me, like it zooms in or zooms out, uh, yeah. as it were, but it does. So that makes perfect sense. That is very cool. Huh. Yeah, and that you can use that also for accelerations. Like for example, when you when you hit the turbo button, you might have like a, a sudden woo, a sudden change in field of view, and that really f- makes you feel whoa! I'm going back in my chair because the acceleration is so big. It's actually your eye gets tricked <laughs> into mm-hmm. like believing you're going so fast. That's really neat. That's a that's that's a very cool like I suppose developer specific thing that once you know, uh, you're able to spot it in other places as well. Uh, now, how did you go about choosing the music to to match different tracks, I suppose? Um, and, and as a quick aside, uh, the Mars DLC music is so cool, and I will play that while I'm at work all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really happy that you like it. Um, we tried uh, different things, I would say, but the bottom line was uh, the music has to pump you up basically and has to make you feel like your heart is racing so that's why we went for psytrance as a very first uh choice mm-hmm. uh, that was the, the initial the, the initial the, the initial direction mm-hmm. uh, we then decided to hire a composer mm-hmm. uh, that is uh um shabazians and uh, another one that was uh, Niels uh, Yves Holtar um, that actually studied with us in Copenhagen. Um, and they actually composed the tracks for Red Out from scratch. And uh, for, for some time, we joked about being the, the only game development studios 
the only indie game development studios that actually had an audio composer uh, on the pay, on the paybook <laughs> on the payroll mm-hmm. because it might it makes maybe a little more sense or it's a little you know less expensive to actually just outsource it have somebody you know compose a couple of tracks and then buy them and uh, and you're done but having a guy like composing uh, like looking at the development process like taking part in the meetings when you actually choose an environment how it looks how it feels that feels like to us it felt valuable and uh, the fact that you're here like still uh, saying that the red out music is awesome uh, I think is a reflection of that, and uh, apart from the talent of the people who worked on it, of course, that's a given. Certainly, certainly. So, and to any listener, I would encourage you uh, to go check out the the like original soundtrack on YouTube or whatever your service is, because uh, it it helps me get through some study sessions, some work sessions at work, and uh, and I dig it. I've even been known to play it in my classroom a time or two, uh, which is kind of fun. Now. Before we move into kind of the branch uh, of Red Out with Space Assault, um, you guys, I, I'm seeing here that it's listed as VR support for Red Out. Is that a big development switch or change in terms of production? Um, well, for Red Out, it kind of was, but because mm-hmm. uh, VR was rather young in, when when we added support. Mm-hmm. And um, also because we kind of had to adapt uh, the fastest racing game ever made <laughs> that has all these camera tricks that we talked about earlier that all of a sudden you can't access those because uh, you can't really change the field of view uh, of, uh, of a player having a, a VR headset. So the feeling of speed must come from something else. So uh, there was actually uh, quite a bit of design work. And also you have to, uh, you, you can't really rely on a third person camera anymore. So you have to, to think in first person. We had to model a cockpit that we didn't actually account for. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to rotate your head freely actually gave you, um, it was re- a little weird in some places because you could actually look at something that was not the track. So you could see some either holes in the landscape or something that we didn't you know, really put so much effort in um, placing in the level, for example, some meshes missing or some holes or some holes in the terrain and whatnot that you can't really see if you can't rotate the camera freely around. So yeah, there was a little bit of work. So <laughs> piece of advice, if you want to support VR, like uh, that's a day zero decision that's going to make your life so much easier. Gotcha. Gotcha. I can imagine a full on redesign, it would seem. Well, 3-4 decided to take Red Out in a, I would argue, different direction. I know it's a, it's a branch of sorts when they came out with Red Out Space Assault, which is a, a space shooter that originally launched onto Apple Arcade and then made its way into console space. Um, at times it's on rails. Sometimes it's, it's more open and free-flowing. It also acts as a prequel to Red Out, but it's a very different type of game. Uh, can you talk to me about the decision to, to branch, as it were, the space opera of, of a, a franchise? Yeah, sure. Um, we actually, um, it's kind of funny because for Redout 1, uh, we wrote a ton of useless lore that is, that is actually in the game. So each team has a story, uh, each uh, power-up has a story, so it was developed by this team on this planet, and uh, everything hints at, uh, you know, that, that we, we wanted the Redout um 
how to say, the Red Hat competition to be sort of like a motorsport competition with a story, like the founding fathers, like you think about, uh, I don't know, Manuel Fangio, for example. Uh, we wanted to have a Manuel Fangio for the Red Hat, from, for the Red Hat universe because, you know, mm -hmm. anti-gravity racing doesn't just like spawn from thin air. There's somebody has been mingling around with anti-gravity vehicles and was crazy enough to test them on the track and actually race them. Mm -hmm. um, so we wanted to give the, this impression that you were part of uh, uh, something bigger. And um, for uh, us, I would say, I don't want to say a small scopes game like Red Out, but like uh, for a first title, for a first game like Red Out was, it mm -hmm. was a big effort. So basically all we all we did was actually hide these references in the game. And for with Space Assault, we actually wanted to develop this story a little bit more because we felt that um, it was nice. We had something to say, even though it was just, you know, uh, we basically made it for fun, the lore in Red Out 1. But uh, <laughs> we really felt, we really grew fond of it. Uh, so uh, apparently uh, Red Out happens in the future. Humanity has left the Earth because um, we basically ruined it, uh, like we are doing pretty much. And uh, went over to race on the moon, on Mars, and all the other planets we luckily moved on. But like you know, moving an entire civilization is not is no piece of cake. So we thought, um, what happened during this massive exodus? Like, where did people go? Uh, who decided who could move to other planets and who couldn't? Like uh, as always, there's going to be a struggle there. There's going to be a power struggle. People in power are going to try to take advantage of their power. Um, there's going to be a massive amount of work to actually you know, build these huge spaceships and actually research technology to terraform planets or build these huge stations on the moon. And so we, we basically asked ourselves a lot of questions. And so we thought, why don't we basically place a red out ship in a 3D environment? And instead of running on a truck, we just let it run free in space. And all of a sudden we had like a space flying game. And then we added uh, guns, like pew, pew. <laughs> we went on a multiplayer, and all of a sudden we were shooting at each other. Oh, all right, we have a space combat game. Uh, let's, let's roll with it. And uh, so we started this incredibly ambitious and uh, ridiculous uh, space opera, space combat game, in which you had tactical options. You had enormous ship that you could dock on and that you could move, that you could switch control from your aircraft to this huge huge ship and you could move them on a on a real-time battlefield that it was multiplayer originally and uh, we basically sat around that it was i mean it was coming along i mean it, this project was actually becoming real but at some point we just sat around the table and we said okay this is gonna take like five years to be complete and it's it's always we, it's always going to be not fully complete as we envision it because it's just so ambitious it's crazy so do we go down this path or we actually what what do we what do we do and then this call from apple came in and uh that they were basically you know the apple arcade service was launching and we had this crazy might sound crazy uh idea to steer the entire production towards a more accessible type of title Let's, uh, we wanted to say, you know, with Red Out, we actually uh, tried to involve a very hardcore audience because Red Out is not a simple game. 
why don't we try to actually make it accessible for once? Like, why don't we try to target a different type, a different type of, ob of audience, sorry, on a different platform that is uh, mobile first in this case, and, um, and see how it goes. Uh, see how much we can simplify the game loop by, but keeping it cool and uh, keeping it in interesting. So we already had uh, ships, uh, guns, missiles, uh, enemies, AIs, uh, assemblable fighters with different parts. And so we basically redesigned the entire system from, from the ground up to be scalable on devices that are a little you know, less powerful than a hardcore PC game. Sorry, a hardcore gaming PC. Mm -hmm. And um, that's basically the, the short version of how Redout Space Assault came to be on Apple Arcade first. What about bringing what was effectively a mobile game that had to run on tablets, phones uh, of all types, bringing that to the console space? Did that constitute a lot of, of changes in design or control? Uh, actually, um, not that much because uh, we basically always play with a controller in our hands uh, when we're at the office. So the controller for us is our natural habitat. So converting uh, a control scheme for controller, I wouldn't even say converting. Like we always had the controller in mind, even when we designed touch controls for touch devices. We always thought about how can this be mapped on a controller that was always there. Also because, you know, uh, people also plug controllers on mobile phones, on uh, Apple TVs or yeah. on iPads. So we wanted gotcha. them to have a good experience as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. It was, it was very cool for me as well to boot up Space Assault, see a very different game, which was interesting, right? You see Red Out, and, and my mind goes to anti-grab racing, and then I'm playing it, and suddenly I'm thrown back, not to Wipeout or F-Zero or Extreme G, but I'm thrown back to Star Fox and kind of, <laughs> and kind of that style of a game, uh, which is neat. It's like you're, you're paying homage to my childhood in some ways. Um, <laughs> Are you guys happy with Space Assault? Um, That's a weird question yes. to ask, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I will ever be like I will ever be able to answer to confidently answer yes to that question to a mm -hmm. game I made because there's always like once you work on something for two years, three years, then all you see is just its flaws and the ways it could improve. Uh, but like, uh, what I'm very proud of is the effort of the team because um, I didn't mention that this entire um, rework came through um, basically three months because we didn't want to miss the launch window for the Apple Arcade service. We said, okay, we have this possibility. We have to do this massive conversion. We have three months time. Can we make it? Can we do it? And uh, the team said yes, and it was uh, something I would not recommend uh, because, <laughs> like, crunch is, crunch is bad. Uh, it's very bad. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, that was also <laughs> very soothing in a way that we had, uh, I mean, given the current uh, games uh, work culture, it's not really healthy to say that, but we basically were working at the office each and every Saturday and um, we were just like uh, grilling on the roof of the office uh, for for lunch each and every Saturday. We just go to the market, uh, buy a bunch of stuff, and then put it on the grill. 
and uh, so at least we have that small compensation for the team for their for the extra time and the extra effort they put in and then of course uh, as soon as the game came out and that went well uh, we tried to do some more some extra compensation as well but um, yeah. the, the the real good thing for me is that like nobody really complained like they were mm-hmm. all on board which mm-hmm. is something that is really dangerous to like romanticize if you, if this word exists i'm not sure because mm-hmm. you should be like you should stick up for yourself and uh, ask not to do extra work, like say no to crunch and uh, mm-hmm. your time should be rewarded. But in a studio like ours, there was still rather small at the time. I mean, Red Out already came out, but we really felt still a small group of indie friends doing games they loved. And like mm-hmm. seeing that all the team basically put in these extra hours for the love of the game and for the love of the group was really amazing. So this is the like, the realization that uh, we have something more than just a bunch of people working in a game studio like for us three four things is so much more yeah, i mean yeah that and, and i'm thinking about your comments on crunch because it is this thing that as we spotlight it more in the gaming industry we realize how detrimental it can be by the same token uh there are groups of people who who are doing it via passion not anything else but that passion enjoyment and and what they uh, loving and they're creating their art. So uh, I appreciate the, the dual perspective in that. It certainly is enlightening. Well, a- as we start to close out here, uh, certainly 3-4 uh, th- is not sitting on their hands and they're working more on, on future projects. Uh, I'll ask if you're able to talk about anything, I would love for you to, to mention what it is you're working on and what people should look forward to if that's something that's in your roadmap to be able to do. Uh, you know, I have this thing that I'm really bad with not disclosure agreements. So, like, <laughs> like I, I always forget what I'm allowed to talk about and what I'm not allowed to talk about. So, conservatively, I would say, uh, yes, we're working. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're working on big things, as we always did. <laughs> How appropriate, but, uh, given the studio title. <laughs> yeah. Now, actually, it was... Um, it's interesting. We're working on many, many things at the at the same time. As as you may as you may know, we got acquired by Saber, so we're now part of uh, the Saber, the Embracer Group, and the Saber Interactive family, which mm-hmm. was like uh, extremely interesting for us. That now we can like uh, <laughs> boot up Skype and talk to Todd Olinsett because he just works there, or like people who made history of video games that so they're just there and they're your colleagues. And uh, that is very weird to us. I'm still getting used to it. Mm-hmm. But it's also an extremely, <laughs> extremely fun feeling. And uh, that is taking, it's taking time for us to adjust to this new reality, but it's also extremely exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, we am, as I said, we're making plans. We are uh, hiring new people. If you go, by the way, if you go to three, four big things slash careers, we have some open positions. Mm-hmm. And uh, Italy is sunny and the food is good. And uh, we're also planning on a bigger office that we are just renovating at the moment. So mm-hmm. we do have big plans for the future, yes. Uh, we're at this delicate position where we don't want to lose the spirit I was just talking about, that we are a group of friends, like friends, or like we, you don't need to be friends with us to actually work in three, four big things. It's perfectly fine if you like clock in your hours, do your work, and then go home. You don't need to be friends with me or with other people. That's like... Uh, that would be inappropriate, I would say. Sure, but yeah, like, I understand. 
Yeah, but the, the spirit of uh, like all pushing together towards making awesome games, we wanted to be there. And I know it's kind of, it sounds like overblown, uh, uh, evil AAA studio rhetoric, but it's really not. Like, in fact, we're still working from home and we're suffering, suffering terribly because uh, I miss being in the studio uh, with the others. That is uh, brilliant to see. Now, looking forward, uh, I well, I should rephrase. I am looking forward greatly to what it is that you guys uh, have on the docket. I hope to see more, uh, more in the Red Out universe, more creativity there, more excitement there, because I, I appreciate the work that you guys do. Uh, where would you like people to go to support you all on socials and to follow you guys for future projects coming forward? Well, we have a Facebook page, we have a Twitter handle, uh, the both uh, three, four big things. We have an Instagram account as well. We have a YouTube channel. Um, <laughs> Google our name, <laughs> you'll find us. We have a Discord channel for Red Out. Yeah, that's important. Um, if you want to, like, uh, there's still, like, we have an awesome community for Red Out, and uh, these crazy people are still organizing weekly Saturday uh, racing events. So in case you just bought Red Out and think about, oh, there's no people playing online, um, you just ping somebody on Discord and uh, either you'll find something or you'll find a tournament every Saturday for people to race on. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, Giuseppe Franchi, I appreciate you so much for joining us today uh, on the Xbox Expansion Pass. Thank you for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much.